Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Okay, welcome everybody. My name is Tara Humphrey and I am the CEO of an organisation called THC Primary Care and predominantly we provide interim management to primary care networks and the business has been for eight years. So we were kind of here before primary care networks but kind of pivoted our support. I run the company with a small team. There's about, I think there's around 10 of us employed and we also use a couple of contractors. And last year, we started a webinar series called The Role of the PCN dot, 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 dot. And that was to help my kind of bit selfish endeavour. It's like I've got potentially at the time there were 17 roles. I think there were a few more. I think there were around 22 roles trying to understand what each of the roles do. So we're slowly working through them. A lot of that information is in one of our primary care network courses. But for some of the, I'd say, not as popular roles, we definitely want to disperse this information as wide as possible. So typically I will see people online and be like, oh, they do this or they do that. And Melissa, I can't remember. I think I may have reached out to you, but I was like, oh, my God, I've been looking for an OT because you guys are pretty rare. So reached out to Melissa and asked her if she would kindly do a webinar. So, Melissa, could you introduce yourself? What do you do and where do you work? So, hi, everyone. My name is Melissa. I'm an occupational therapist by background, but work as a mental health practitioner in four surgeries in Hertfordshire. So that was that's me. Um, Tara, I, I think you did reach out and I think you had shared a podcast about someone with type 1 diabetes so that's how we connected. Yes and my daughter's got type 1 diabetes and so is Melissa. So you've got like a hybrid you're I'd say even you you're rare because you are both an OT and you work as a mental health practitioner so can we start what attracted you to the role? Um, so what attracted me to the role is that um, I had done so I've been an OT for just uh, just over three years in December so I'd done three rotations already. So my first rotation was in specialist learning disabilities. My second one was in acute and crisis. And um, I did a bit of inpatient mental health. So I saw the job online and I thought, why not Why not apply? And the rest is history. Um, so I've now been in four surgeries across um, Hertfordshire. So each surgery, I think, is different because the one on a Friday I work for caters up to 15,000 patients. Um, it coincides with a university campus, so 5,000 of those patients are university students. And so obviously it's sort of adapting patients with low mood and anxiety. We're still seeing patients coming out of post-COVID and the impact it's having on them. 
and sort of just building awareness of how they can still build routine and practice into their lives um, and also just understanding what's impacted their mental health so they can still aid a form of recovery back into the society. So where you are an OT by background and you're in the role, you're in a slightly different role, are you utilising your OT skills? Yes, pretty much every day. Um, there's not a day I, I don't use my OT skills. So like, for example, this week I've had a patient who was 50. Um, they didn't want to have any medication. They came in for um, sleep insomnia and um, routine planning. So I did like in our surgery, I've developed my own um, performers, I would say, just to screen patients based on the OT values um, model of human occupation, which is some theory done by C. Parkinson. So I asked the questions like, how is um, like your activities of daily living, like eating, sleeping, do you go to, to work? So obviously we would um, discuss these social prescribers if they need the support benefits or food banks or anything like that. Then um, how, what what is their goal is where I sort of step in. So I sent them some sleep hygiene techniques from the NHS website online. I talked about the blue light, obviously um, removing any devices after 9pm, cutting down the caffeine. Uh, I'm actually due to see that patient in two weeks' time. So I've left them, set them on their goal and see how they'll go and then they'll come back to me and stuff. Melissa, would you be able to share, like, what does your team look like? Because you work as an NDT, don't you? So what, who is in your, who, who do you work with on a regular basis and how is your team organised? So we're in a small team of six. So we have one specialist nurse who does some prescribing. But in our area at the moment, the GPs still want to prescribe the medication, but she'll still have an active role in saying, oh, for example, sertraline is the first line that is usually started for patients. So she may say to GPs, oh, they've been on this for four weeks, Let, maybe let's try something else. Then we have a recovery practitioner who is amazing in our team. She leads anxiety management groups, which I think is now in the, the second phase now, post-COVID face-to-face, which we're all loving because it was all virtual. So she's sort of delving deep to understand what is anxiety, um, the symptoms, the physical stresses, what makes us, what makes our patients anxious. Is it going to the shops? Is it going to hospital appointments and then she may do some like therapeutic work on a one-to-one basis as well um, and how do they cope with anxiety so they may do some like box breathing techniques they may be given some homework like a like a stress bucket or um other ones is where you you write what your worries on paper but also just trying to understand what's going on are they realistic versus unrealistic but she's also developed some great resources which is amazing then we have two lovely support workers in our team um, who do the outreach, amazing people. So they will go and see the patients at home after my colleague and I assess them. They may sort of teach them how to get back into the community. They may say, we're just going to walk to your front door today and then say front door today and then try that for a few weeks. Then front door may change. So we're going to walk into town, really doing it at the client's pace because sometimes when we say, you need to go to town now. A client feels apprehensive and may not want to see you again. So it's just really going at their own space and speed. Um, they also help them like just finding local groups. So like women shared, men shared, um, befriender services, also signposting to other services that are in the area. We are seeing a lot of patients who've had bereavement, so they may find some counselling services or make some counselling referrals for them. Um, the list is long. And then there's me and the OT. Um, I still assess patients. Sometimes I will make referrals to adult social care if I feel there's need and we'll discuss with the GP but we work it coincide like every day we work together we have our 
meeting every week where we discuss our patients that we are worried about, but also just working how we can plan them together and see what needs to be done to make them more independent. How long have you been in your role? So I've been in this role since January. Do you feel like the lines of communication and the roles and responsibilities across your team are really clear or sometimes you find yourself stepping, you know, like, do you, do you step on each other's toes? Not in a horrible way, but is it really clear what you each do? Yeah, so it's it's very clear what we do because even in our team, we have a role checklist that has been developed by our um, clinical next specialists. And it's also shared with the social prescribers, the health coaches and the care coordination as well. So we have a clear outline pathway. So sometimes I use that when I'm assessing patients like, oh, um, let me just check this. Do you think this will be appropriate or not? Because again, a lot of patients we've seen are, still paying for their prescription they're, they're not unaware of the prepaid certificate yet um as you know with the cost of living nine pound fifty is a lot and obviously some patients may choose between eating and a prescription so it's all these things but we use that um leaflet but we work inside like there's days we're all just we check in every day and there's not a day no one calls one another in the team do you carry a caseload so i don't carry a caseload but i can see patients up to four sessions so I'm and technically classes and R's a reimbursement scheme role is my role but I see patients maybe up to four to six sessions but I try and make sure there's no more than four sessions if there is then I would sort of say to our um, support workers in the team can you perhaps see this patient a bit longer if I feel they need longer term intervention um, there are cases sometimes where patients need more than six weeks if they if their case is a bit complex but I don't hold anyone physically on a case because in primary care that's that's virtually impossible they come and then you have to sort of try and deal with your consultation half an hour and see what what can be done today and then maybe book a follow-up so your consultations are half an hour and are people referred to you or would you consider yourself like first contact can people come directly to you so in our patch um they see the gp for for 10 minutes and the GP will raise the issues and then the GP signposts them to us. Obviously, we know our GPs are very tight, the time is very stretched. So um, they'll say, I'm going to refer you to the mental health practitioners. They'll call you within five to seven days. We sometimes call them early. So my colleague and I um, call them and then we arrange that first contact, whether it's face to face or in person. But it's down to the patient what they prefer. And how do you know that you're doing a good job? So uh, recently, I've actually developed a um, feedback tool so patients can actually say, like, whether the service has benefited them, yes or no. And a lot of the feedback has been quite um, positive. So between February till now, I've seen about 200 patients. So that's about 32 patient contacts per week. And obviously, the GPs, we've seen an increase, like, praise in what we're doing and obviously recognition as well. So Joe, she said, and I think a lot of roles find this, um, um, her OT works as part of an MDT frailty team employed at Band 7, but feels underutilised. It's come from high level experience in secondary care. She's a trailblazer and hoping to shape pathways, overcome barriers in her current scope. How you've been in post since January. It sounds like you've got a very forward thinking PCN in regards to how your MDT is structured. Do you feel utilised? And if you do, how have you and your team managed to get the network to understand what it is you do and to make sure you're nice and busy but not overworked? So to answer your question, Joe, so my colleague who's the nurse specialist will deal with the med side. I will deal more with the anxiety routine, structure and planning. 
So I try and do stuff that is OT based to ensure that I'm still utilising my skills. We also sometimes work in coincide. So if my colleague is doing something medication related, I will still do my bit as OT. But also just bringing, I think what we did at the first beginning when I started, we brought a meeting to the VCN of what I could do as an OT. So actually just showing that you have, you've employed an OT, you may think, oh, an OT can't do anything. I've actually shown them like what I could do in the surgery. Obviously, there are times where I, think I want to make a cup of tea with the patient just after making a cup of tea. Then I have to pull myself back and say, Melissa, you cannot bring a kettle into the consultation room. You can't stop making sandwiches. Um, but just really having that open discussion with the PCN, like, as an OT, my role is this. This is what we, I can do, being adaptive. There's one patient at the very beginning I did a Montreal cognitive assessment with um, I just bought some like dominoes in and she just started just we had a small quick game so just being very creative and ad- adaptive with our um, line of work obviously I think our court has Royal College of OT has the um, statement of improving lives um, mandate so just being very adaptable in practice. If you were talking to an alien and they did not know anything about general practice and you said I'm an OT they said, what's an OT? What would be your elevator pitch? What is it What is it succinctly that you do to help people? So, um, Tara, so I would say to the patient, I'm an occupational therapist that is trying to get you back to living independently. What would you like to do? Um, what, what would you like to do? And what is your goal with me? What do you want me to help you with in order to be independent? Where does your social prescriber come in? So the social prescriber comes in after the consultation. So sometimes a patient may say to you, um, I just want help with finances. Yeah. But then obviously, like I may dig in deeper, like I had a lady this morning who's, who's struggling to walk. She's got a bad gait. Her relative frame is broken and her um, and she's got a wheelchair. So she's saying she wants to go out. So in that case, I was asking, like, do you experience pain? How how much is the pain? In the end, I said to her, has NOT come out to assess your home environment because she also has epilepsy? To assess whether you need a pendant alarm, whether you need rails put in and they said no one has come out to my house so that's where I've sort of done a short piece of a short referral to adult social care to refer her for that piece of work. Do are you whereabouts do you work from home in practice or do you go out or both? Or? So I, I do both obviously um, on a Monday I work from home all day because obviously as you know the practice is this, the space is limited but I usually go to the surgeries in the afternoon apart from a Friday when I've got space all day at surgery. I'd love to go to the patient's homes, but obviously that that's not part of the primary care plan yet in the okay. NHS long-term plan, but who knows to say it might come back. <laughs> so just going back to what Joe says, and, and every role, well, not every role, lots of roles experiences, it's the overcoming barriers. So what barriers have you encountered in your role to date? I think one is room space has been challenging because you have some patients who, who actually want to see you in person so I've had a few patients who've got hearing aids or um, they have some form of visual impairment and they want to come to the surgery with the loved one the other thing I've I've found an issue is is the rotary system because um, especially in our Friday surgery the university we're booking maybe four weeks ahead and sometimes like the rooms don't get allocated maybe to like a few days before so those are some of the barriers that we face and I think the final one I would touch on is just accessibility to some of the services so for instance the um I think a patient needed referral elsewhere to another secondary services that took very long so the patient just gets frustrated and then obviously 
complaints take place and then you're trying to work out what's gone on but I think in our team we do reflect on that quite often of what we could have done differently. Do you go to PCN meetings outside of your MDT meeting? So yeah so we do go to the PCN meetings Um, we're also involved in the patient forum groups so this week we did a mental health talk which was quite nice to hear patients um, tell patients about our mental health services. A lot of the patients didn't actually know we existed Obviously, that was a breakdown in communication for them. Um, but obviously, I think I'm, I'm now going to be hopefully going to some of those meetings to address some of the issues raised and see how we can say much more about the service. Because I think they would, didn't know it existed or didn't know it was there. A lot of them were like, how long has this service been there? And then we were explaining that. What national support is available for your for your roles, especially in a primary care network perspective? Like if you're a manager, you know, like we've got WhatsApp groups pharmacists have got CPPE like where do you go if you're an OT? So in in our team we have a WhatsApp group and we debrief pretty much every day um, as an occupation therapist there is the Royal College of OT there is a um, primary care network monthly meeting yeah. which is set up by Jen Smith um, so that's quite useful there's also a newsletter that goes out um, the Royal College has a lot of resources available um, the HEPC is there, but I think it's more just like practical guidance on the registration aspect. Yeah. Um, but also there's a few Facebook groups as well for OTs working in primary care as well. If you were speaking to somebody that's brand new in their role, what advice would you give them? Brand new OT, they have no idea about primary care networks and they're the first one. I think... The, the, what I would say, if, if I was going back to myself, um, I'd say use Twitter more um, because <laughs> primary care, there is, there is, I could, I could list people um, who've worked in the primary care. I think okay. using Twitter as a platform is amazing. I think take some positive risk taking. There'll be days you get it right, days you don't get it right, but obviously that's part of learning. Um, we all reflect in action and on action on situations. Utilize the skills that you've learned from other jobs. Um, it's not all one size fits all and you can be adaptable and be creative in everything you do and the final thing I say is is have fun because um, primary care is is every day is different like this week has been totally different I did extended hours 11 till 8 I usually work 8 till 6 you'll have patients DNA in the hot weather versus the winter so it's all just very different and I think it's it opens those inquiries like why are patients not attending despite them making that first contact the surgery what is preventing them coming to the appointment and what will you do differently to improve patient outcomes because then either way we're sort of reducing their the health risk for these patients obviously as part of the NHS long-term plan but also maybe the health and the qualities we've seen a lot of patient patients from um BAME ethnic groups come to the surgery now to seek support around their mental health you ask yourself how is it because they've gone with a loved one that first step through the door? Then they can say, oh, I've been, I don't need to go with you, but I'm, I'll call you afterwards. But I've seen that in, in real situations with patients and it's quite nice. Do you have clinical supervision? Yeah, so I'm, I have supervision twice. So I have supervision by a nurse and then I have supervision by an OT. So um, I have that once a month, but also if I need to chat to them outside, I, um, they're always available on hand. Just actually, I did think, Melissa, that you are not a good example because it sounds like you've got so much support, which is amazing. You're in a fantastic example. So many networks don't have that. 
Mm. But it's great. You are a fantastic example. But I know there'll be so many people thinking, don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that. When you mentioned enhanced access, you did make me think. I just written a blog called What to Focus on in Quarter Two. And I do invite people to start thinking about like winter pressures. Do you anticipate your role changing, increasing to accommodate the winter? Like, what is it that you can bring to that conversation to help? with planning your time and being proactive with your community? I think we will definitely see um, a difference in winter. We're already seeing it in summer that there has been some decline in patients coming to surgeries. We're seeing a lot of patients now opting for telephone than in person, Mm -hmm. but then obviously you don't know if they're masking. Winter pressures will be different because obviously a lot of patients say they're a lot worse, their mental health gets a lot worse. So maybe as a team, whether we start thinking about video contact perhaps but then again we have to make sure it's accessible because not everyone uses video I think really seeing what they will need so obviously it's a bit hard to tell because we haven't quite not got into winter but also we will anticipate a a rise in referrals out in the winter months because you've got Christmas you've got you've got all these anniversary months that could be sad to someone but also it can be have a detrimental impact on their health and well-being as well. So it's very hard to tell yet. But it'll be interesting when it comes to winter. So Melissa, where where and who is your OT supervisor? So my my OT supervisor is in is in the same area, but she just works in the another patch. So obviously she's now going to be working in an enhanced primary care team, um, which is something that we're going to be setting up. Um, in a couple of months time so she works maybe like 30 minutes away from me but we we have supervision online or in person um, but she works for the, for the trust same trust as I do um, I was going to say to Joe, um, your OT colleagues if they contact the Royal College of OT if they get that um, there'll be a section in the magazine and then a contact in there um, I think it's Jen Smith is the one she, she can give you most of the Facebook groups as well because um, there's loads that she can suggest but if your if your OTs are part of the Royal College of OT, they'll be able to find your contact details in the Royal College of OT magazine. And how who facilitated your OT supervision? Was it you? Or was it your clinical supervisor? Your so CD? so at the very beginning, um, I've always been managed by a nurse, and my nurse, the nurse manager that I had, was like, "It's valuable that you have OT supervision as part of continuity." Obviously, most of our most occupational therapists know the audit is coming in a couple of months' time. So it's vital as part of the HB status to have that OT supervision. So hence I have two two hours of supervision per month. But I think it's valuable because we all bring something different to the table. I was, I was going to say the only thing is that obviously, say if I had a case that I was not, I was a bit apprehensive of, I was I'd contact the duty doctor if I was in the surgery. That would be for super, supervision and guidance and establishing whether that patient needs to go to secondary care. What should we be looking for when we're hiring an OT? This one, I, when I saw this question, it was a bit of a tough question because OT is unique and obviously we work in different skills. Our skills are transferable. But I think it's it's asking yourself, if you're the one who's put the ad out, what are you hoping to achieve by having an OT in your service? Um, when I applied for this job, it was either nurse, social work or OT. But at least we all bring something different. Um, and also what's to say that I think I actually spent a day at this um, place before I applied. But I think it's just what, what are you hoping to achieve and how would you want that to transpire into your career journey and mapping? 
So I think for one of my aims on my um past on my PDP professional development plan is um I hope to use this this role to sort of pursue some research in diabetes and OT. And obviously we do see a lot of patients in primary care with diabetes and the health inequalities. I think that that question is and the point of doing these webinars is that I think many manage and most managers won't understand what the role is a lot of cds don't understand what the role is so they'll be thinking why do we need an, why do we need an ot like i don't understand what it is you know like the value that they bring but i'd also say from outside of the kind of technical skills it's very likely that most ot's will be like the first person they'll be the trailblazer so they do need you know like resilience and i know resilience is you don't just have it you develop it so it's like you need to have the mindset of this is like a lot it's long term it's a long-term role that you need to be visible and it's always about not being frightened to repeat yourself not being frightened to say this is what I do here's an example this is what I do because mm-hmm. I think that this role and there are other roles you know I would say like a podiatrist you know, I don't know any networks I've got a PCM podiatrist. There are certain roles that they're just in primary in a primary care network um, setting are not widely utilised due to the lack of understanding. So I think you just need oodles and oodles and oodles of patients. Where did you find the job ad? So for me, the, the job ad was being advertised on the um, NHS Jobs in Our Trust. Um, so I... I rang the lady and then I applied. Initially, I'd actually got the job in June of last year. Then I did take it. And then um, I slowly regretted my choices as the months went on. And then I contacted her back in November. Then um, she has happily accepted my offer to take it again. (laughs) And how did you, when you said you spent a day there before you got the job or did you apply? Like how did they, how did that come about? So I just, as most jobs, sometimes with them, I just asked to spend like a couple of hours. So I just spent a couple of hours, but it ended up turning up to be like just a conversation. And obviously um, we had a chat about the role. And I think there was times to go, but then obviously in my last, in my previous job, we went back into COVID measures. So it was, I didn't think it was quite safe to go to that place because we were in a COVID lock, lockdown in the ward and then going to the community that would have been practical and the best idea. But we've had more of a conversation, but that was what I had planned to spend a couple of hours just shadowing. But I know one of our colleagues that's recently joined the team did that and she found that beneficial as well. It's mm, really good. How do you demonstrate the value, uh, your value as an OT? Do you use any outcome measures? Um, so, so I do use some outcome measures. So I've done, I think at the beginning I mentioned I created like a, um, a survey tool using like a scale. So of one to ten using smiley faces. My my first OT supervisor sort of reminded me like what you get at the petrol station or the airport where you're ranking yeah. the toilet or or the airport service at that day. So I sort of used that and it's quite friendly, so people can just rank that. Um, at the beginning, when a patient sees me, I will rank their mood of one to ten as well using a similar model, so I can justify whether by having the intervention has it improved or not. I think demonstrating the value is yeah is so key and I think you have to keep communicating that mm-hmm. and saying this is what we did this is what we've achieved this is what the patients say training have you had any do you have you had or do you need any further training to support your development 
So I've already had sensory training um, for my last job. Um, I was fortunate enough to have gone to the Royal College of AT conference a few weeks ago. Um, in our in our trust, we're sort of just working out what training is available because technically I'm I'm an OT, but there's nothing really for primary care. So I'm going to be doing some personality disorder personality disorder training in a, com- a couple of months, yep. which would be quite good. Um, and I think there was talks about doing some AMPS training, so the assessment motor and skills training, but then we don't know like who would pay for it, whether it be the PCN or whether it be the trust. So all the nitty gritties of the financial side is sort of coming out. But I think there is room for training. There's always some training in our trust that's going on. And the GPs are supportive if I want to do something outside of the trust. Like I was fortunate enough to do the Elizabeth Tasson leadership programme which is just just finished. Um, they're looking for mentors at the moment, but also they fund grants if someone wants to do further training, masters or go to conferences. So that's also another way to seek funds as well. Who employs you? So I work for the um, primary care network, but I'm employed by NHF. So that's how it works. But then when it comes down to the, the money side, um, the NHS puts a bit and the PCMs puts a bit into the to pay my my wages that's how it's been explained to me okay um, so you're when you say that so you're employed by your trust and uh, it, it may not matter no I think it does matter so you are so do you know are you down as an OT or a mental health practitioner so when I, I open up my pay slip tower my title is a mental health practitioner on it Okay. Um, but obviously, when I when I talk to patients, because of the whole, we've had a few patients say, "Can you prescribe this?" I I give that disclaimer at the very beginning. Um, by background, I'm an occupational therapist. If you discuss anything about medication, this will have to go back to the doctors or the prescribing nurse. That's like my opening statement to them because some patients will want you to prescribe there and then, which is outside of my scope of practice. Okay. Once, let me just. I just want to double check something. It's that's interesting. <laughs> so hopefully, when managers see this and uh, CDs see this, they will think that is interesting that you're being funded via that route and not down the OT route. But I suppose, yeah, every area does it slightly differently, and it doesn't. Ultimately, you're there, you're doing the job, and everybody seems to be happy. Do you ever feel? Like, where is your home? Where do you feel like you belong? Trust or PCM? I think I think the PCMs, um, I think it's both. But I think the PCMs really value our input because obviously, like one of our surgeries had 65 tasks when we first started. Yeah. And now it's down to 10. So I think the PCMs are really seeing the work we do. And I think it's that conversation, that therapeutic relationship, because I think I saw one the other days and they were like oh thank you for sorting this one out I didn't know that that was a service in place and then it's just the conversation starts and I think it's just quite nice and just for the those people listening in and they can't see the chat um we've got a few OTs here a supporting frailty and falls so hopefully you've got some good examples of how to utilize an OT in your primary care network final thoughts so you've said or kind of, and I know it's an obvious statement, but when looking for an OT, you really have to think about, you know, what it is you're trying to achieve. You've talked about, it sounds like your network is really forward, forward thinking. You've got your, you've 
created clarity in regards to your roles checklist so you're not so you all complement each other and you've got that relationship where you can just pick up the phone so my kind of if you are a clinical director or manager listening in or watching in on this is to try to do that before or just be really upfront that you want your OT to help you create that clarity in an ideal world you'd walk into it and it'd be like this is the role now make it your own but in many instances it's like they come in like <laughs> like what do you do can you help and then you're kind of building the plane whilst you're flying it and I would say yeah just be upfront. make sure you've got that role clarity clinical supervision is so 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 important and have dedicated time you talked about um, you're not going to meetings and you've kind of got your outcomes so just sharing that so it's just all the things these would say like they're the fundamentals and the basics but sometimes these things slip because it's so busy it's so so busy and you kind of like you stumble like oh I should have done that oh I should have done that oh I should have done that so I think a lot of patience and planning is required on both sides do you have any final tips for a PCN management team thinking about bringing an OT in like what would be like your one piece of advice you would want to let you'd want to leave with them oh Tara you put me on the spot um (laughs) I think I think um first of all there was a Royal College of OT article done in October by another ours worker so I would suggest the PCN directors check that out um secondly what's the if it doesn't work that's okay if it does that's great um you don't know if you don't try and I think having an OT is part of the NHS long-term plan it's something that we are seeing like we're going to have paramedics we're going to have podiatrists we're going to have physios in the surgery so why not expand the team now um we don't know what the government will do each day is new for all of us but just give it a go um the worst they could say is oh it hasn't worked out that's it but um don't leave it too late and the final thing I'll say is um, discuss with the Royal College of OT. I'm sure they're happily discuss like um, role descriptions with you. It's what you want it to be. Yes. So, so <laughs> yeah. without without you, think think bold, think brave, and be curious is what I leave you with. Oh, thank you so much. If we don't have any further questions, we will send this recording out to you. Please share it with your colleagues. There'll be a blog, podcast, video. It'll be just everywhere so we will share it with you and yet thank you so much for coming i really really do appreciate it thank you so much tara cheers thank Thank you. you so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.